0: Welcome to Doctor Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Doctor Tom McGovern, and I'm Doctor Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss
1: health-related topics, and we do it from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, returning to the show as epidemiologist Mark Strand, who has appeared on several podcast-only episodes about coronavirus. And this fervent evangelical Christian will, I'm sure, delight you with both his faith and his knowledge. But before we get to the episode and to the meat of the episode, we want to make you aware of an important event that should interest you. Medicine's Integrity, Reclaiming the Doctor-Patient Relationship, is the theme of the Catholic Medical Association's annual educational conference, which will be held virtually on September 25th and 26th. The CMA made this
1: switch from in-person to virtual due to the pandemic, as you might guess, but it's excited to foster faith and fellowship as they can be national experts in areas such as humanities, law, psychology, theology, medicine, uh, you name it, to shine a light on important national and cultural issues that might compromise the
0: doctor-patient
1: relationship.
0: Our keynote speaker for the conference is EWTN's anchor and award-winning journalist Raymond Arroyo pro-life activist Abby Johnson will also speak during the conference.
1: And attendees can earn up to 36.75 CME credits
0: and have access to all of the talks through the end of the year. Registration is now open and more information is available at www.cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org.
1: We'll see all of you listeners there virtually, of course. But Tom, before we get into our show uh, and our terrific returning guest, we have a couple of, let me ask you a couple of summary questions to kind of warm up the crowd. I'm, I'm the warm-up band for the show.
0: <laughs> yes, you are.
1: So a couple of things that we hear batted around in public discourse occasionally, and I hear often misquoted. So let's try to our ability to set the record straight. The first one. If a low-risk person contracts COVID, is he or she more likely to die from it than from an influenza infection?
0: We know that overall, the risk of dying from the COVID virus, if you get it in your body, is about 12 to 39 times more than if you got influenza virus. So there is a high risk.
1: And I think our our good friend, uh, Dr. Mark Strand, has pointed out some handy numbers to hold on to. 2020, about 155,000 deaths from covid versus about 34,000 deaths from influenza in a really bad year.
0: Yeah, that was 2017-18, which is the last time you saw more deaths per week across the country than you would expect. Uh, And, of course, we've been having that now since late March or early April here from COVID.
1: And then a hot-button question over the last few weeks, hydroxychloroquine. What's the low down and dirty on it? Any data that says it's helpful, not helpful, uh, what's the story?
0: There are eight Uh, blinded or controlled trials right now that have been reported, peer-reviewed literature, none of them show a benefit for hydroxychloroquine. There was one study from Henry Ford. The problem is many of those patients were also on dosages of steroids which other studies suggest help. So right now we have no standalone data and just a few days ago New England Journal reported a study which showed that uh, there was no benefit uh, whether you're on just hydroxychloroquine or hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin compared to patients who were not.
1: So is COVID more infective than influenza? That is to say, uh, am I more likely to be infected if I'm standing next to a COVID patient or if I'm standing next to an influenza patient?
0: Absolutely. And, and that's the number we've talked about before called r NOT, or the reproductive number. And that number is 2.5 or so for uh, COVID at 1.5 or so For influenza, which means that's how many people you are likely to infect with it. Plus, if you've had influenza, many people have had uh, the vaccine, which even further reduces the risk of getting influenza.
1: So once again, we've got data that shows this is not just another influenza. It's more deadly.
0: It's more infectious. And now our medical trivia question of the day, a short but sweet. On July 28th, 2020, an article in Nature Microbiology determined that SARS-CoV-2 virus has been circulating in what animal for the last four to seven decades? Hang on to the end of the show for your answer, and we'll be back with more here on Dr. Doctor.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio, and our guest today really needs no introduction because he's given so much of his time to Dr. Doctor and our listeners. Uh, I'm sure you'll recognize him, Dr. Mark Strand, professor in the School of Pharmacy and the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University. He's a teacher, he's a researcher, he's brilliant, and he's a heck of a nice guy. So Dr. Mark, welcome back to Dr. Doctor.
2: Thank you. It's been a few weeks, and so it's a pleasure to be back again.
1: Yeah, We're all uh, glad that we're all healthy and here and uh, and still have a chance to talk about the things that we'll be talking about for decades, which is uh, this crazy pandemic.
0: Yeah, it's funny uh, you say that, Chris. My 18-year-old daughter says, darn it, we're living through history now, and my future children will take tests on this and not know the answer. I can't (laughs) stand it. She's right. She's right. So Mark, back in the early spring, many Americans looked forward to summer being a respite from the ravages of COVID. We thought SARS-CoV-2 would be a seasonal virus like influenza. What happened?
2: Well, there's a couple of things. Early on, people were, I think, more cooperative with the shelter-in-place orders back in April and May, and we certainly saw the benefit of that. Um, You know, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania were hit really hard but then they were able to bring it down with really strong shelter-in-place orders. But in the coming, with the coming of summer, coupled with a lot of impatience from certain governors, we saw many states lifting those orders, I think, prematurely. And so since then, we've seen these resurgences quite out of control in Texas and Florida, Arizona, Louisiana. So I think it's largely a result of, of reversing those orders. And, and also people kind of getting tired of the restrictions and just saying, let's go out to... You know, whatever they enjoy, racing or events, and um, so I think that's what's hit us.
1: And it's a lot easier psychologically to shelter in place when it's the dead of winter than mm-hmm. before summer comes. So yes. maybe we were we were right on the degree rise in temperature helping the infection rate, but that's been offset by the fact that the, the nice weather draws people outside, and their
0: shelter in place fatigue combined.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So. Mark, there's an article I sent you a link to, and you may have seen it, but Paul Cieslak, our friend in Oregon, sent one on how uh, midday summer sunlight uh, inactivates the virus rapidly. In fact, if you're at 40 degrees latitude, which would be those of you listening in Columbus, Ohio, Philadelphia, or Boulder, Colorado, your midday sun on June 21st would inactivate 90% of virus within eight minutes So, versus 19 minutes. Uh, in early October or early March. How is this information helpful or not helpful, Mark?
2: Well, I think it partially explains the fact that we haven't seen uh, surges in uh, research, you know, surges of case outbreaks in response to the protests. So I think that outdoor, both the wind but also the sun, has been able to deactivate the virus to some extent. Um, There's also some evidence that there's, you know, through the use of UV lights in the tops of like restaurants and where you could have virus circulating upward, those lights could potentially kill the virus as well. So there's some definite um, opportunities to consider the use of UV light for uh, deactivation of the virus in places where people are congregating classrooms, for example, or other such settings.
1: Well, you know, along those lines, Mark, air conditioning has also been suggested uh, as something that could be responsible for some of the spike, particularly in the warm southern states. Is there evidence for this to confirm or deny it?
2: Well, there is a study coming out that came out of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health that showed sort of like being on an airplane or being indoors in the winter that 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 recirculated contaminated air without the use of HEPA filters to capture like bacteria and viruses. Um, can help to spread and disseminate the, the risk of the infection. Um, but to specifically uh, prove that, say, people being in rooms with air conditioners in those southern states, you know, that would be an amazing study to be able to prove that. You know, how would you have controls? How would sure. you be able to just confer, you know, uh, explain away the fact that it was just one individual in that room who had close proximity to others? So uh, I don't think there's evidence there for people to not use air conditioning, Um, You know, for example, like somehow it's an amplifier, uh, but certainly it could recirculate contaminated air to some extent.
0: So that would be any indoor air handling, whether or not it's air-conditioned air.
2: Yeah, exactly. Whereas
0: in airplanes, they're filtering out well over 99% with with each pass. So that's probably the the safest air handling, short of a, a negative pressure room in a hospital, and there aren't many of those. Yeah. So you earlier said there's really no evidence is there to show that protests have led to spikes in cases?
2: Well, the, there is some evidence from LA, and it's mostly anecdotal. You know, if you think about the timing, the George Floyd uh, yes. you know, issue was on May 25th. The 30th of May, the protests were at high pace in Los Angeles. And then on June 17th is when their resurgence really took off again. And so some had there are suggesting it was associated. But in contrast, the location where the event happened and where the protests were the greatest number, Minnesota, June 17th was actually their nadir. That is, the number of new cases was at its lowest point before or after. That would be suggestive to me that their evidence is not there. And so the dispersal of the virus from wind, you know, deactivation of the virus from UV rays, as you alluded to, Um, and then also the likelihood that a person who may have been infected would have close contact for a sufficient duration with that same number of people is also not very high. So I don't mean to suggest that we just all go out and protest and demonstrate and not be concerned, but I think there is some explanation for why it didn't result in the kind of, uh, uh, resurgence or uptick that people expected.
0: Okay. Something else that's been in the news lately, a few weeks ago, there was that, uh, infamous to some of us article in the New York Times saying that churches are a major source of outbreak, in which they only point out 650 cases out of three and a half million, which I think really says churches have been pretty safe. The examples they gave were churches that weren't practicing social distancing masks, and they were uh, singing together. Now, my question relates to the Supreme Court decision um, related to Nevada, where they upheld the governor's right to limit any church service to 50 people or less, regardless of size of the facility, even though all other facilities, restaurants, casinos, were allowed 50% occupancy, uh, and grocery stores and restaurants. So, is there any public health reason, any scientific based reason to suggest that churches should be limited that way while restaurants and casinos are not?
2: I don't find any. You know, there was this um, website called Mass Live which rated different activities based on their series, you know, risk oh. Bar- bars and concerts were given a 10. And it was looking at things like, is the event indoors or outdoors? How close are the people? How long are they in that proximity? What's the likelihood that people would comply with mask guidelines? You know, and what's the personal risk? Is it young people? Is it So they had five criteria they used. Now, I, I don't buy the results that they came up with because, so for example, bars and concerts were given a 10. Church was given a risk, of eight and then casinos were given a risk level of six and that was the same as restaurants and they were arguing well in casinos there's lots of open floor plans and other things like that um i'm not a casino frequenter so i can't speak to how (laughs) what they're designed like or how you know what happens in there Um, but i just think that was really a core decision on their part. I think it showed their concern that the whole state is dependent upon those casinos for their economic livelihood, but that they chose to then in reverse use it against churches I think was most uh, unenlightened and and most unfortunate. Um, I'm like you, I'm seeing that the number of outbreaks in churches and in faith events is very small. You you can almost always trace it to a setting where there's, um, you know, frankly, I would argue a theological problem where some of the teaching associated with that faith community would suggest that somehow we have some invincibility as believers ah. and, you know, that this isn't, doesn't need to be taken seriously. So they're kind of flaunting their mm. so-called yes. freedom or protection. And that's been true of a lot of the cases that I've seen with, with large-scale outbreaks. That's not the type of approach that any mm. churches I'm familiar with or working with would approach this from. So I think it's most unfortunate.
1: And it's interesting. It, it seems to me that we asked the question wrong. So the, you know, the court question was, is it okay to limit churches to 50 compared to the casinos? Maybe we should have said, shouldn't we limit the casinos to 50? I mean, <laughs> the, the smaller the smaller number may be just fine. We shouldn't increase the church number. We perhaps should decrease the casino number. But I think it's that inconsistency. We've seen this time and again, and we've talked with our psychology friends that that feeds this sort of Uh, paranoia, anger, uh, a sense of rage, where people want to just stop believing any data when they spot an inconsistency like this. Mm -hmm. It's human nature, I know, but it is misfortunate. Uh, I don't believe anyone's well-served by that.
0: No. You know, your friend and ours, Paul Carson, has me onto a new favorite website for COVID data. Uh, That's public.tableau.com. And there's an author there, Peter James Walker, who has all these wonderful COVID um, pages. And each page for each state has four graphs. One for daily tests, daily positive tests, number of hospitalized patients in the state, and number of patients dying each day. And it's a fascinating snapshot into very different results in the states. My question to you, Mark, is what are some of the key takeaway points that you want listeners to know about what is going on across the country in various states?
2: Sure. Um, that site is really nice. Um, it, it, for one thing, It's a time course so that each of the figures starts and ends on the same date. So it's easier to sort of see the Mm. way in which testing is often following the outbreak, for example, as opposed to kind of a time zero, which is used for a lot of them. So all the states have their own time zero and you can't tell what date you're dealing with. So, yeah, that was really that is a really good site. You know, I think some of the takeaways, I think these figures have shown that um, testing intensity frequently has followed actually the worsening of the outbreak. So I did some correlation analysis between the prevalence of the outbreak in a state and the percent of their state who was tested. Yes. And the correlation is a very high 0.66, meaning that the percent of people tested is in direct response to the extent of the outbreak, as opposed to other states like here in the upper Midwest, where our testing has been so aggressive that the Association between the prevalence and the testing is is not strong because we're not testing in response to outbreaks. We're testing as a surveillance, and so then obviously our test positivity rate is also low mm-hmm. because we're we're testing uh, more widely in order to just make sure we can identify any outbreaks and snuff them out as opposed to coming in to test after an, an outbreak. So those are some of the uh, some of the findings that are worth observing.
0: So one of the things I read, and maybe you can explain this, but somebody said that a state is not doing enough testing if their test result positivity rate is 5% or higher. Is that true? And if so, why?
2: Yeah, I I accept that. Um, You know, the reason would be if your test positivity rate is, say, 10% or higher, then that would suggest that you probably have a lot more people out there who are positive, but just who haven't been identified. On the other hand, to the extent that your test positivity rate is low, like 5% or lower, that would suggest you're doing wide scale surveillance. Most of them, 95% are not positive. Therefore, you don't have this lurking endemic virus out there that at any given point in time could you know inflame. So th- those are the, really the benefits of having this low test positivity
1: rate. Well, across the board, Mark, if we think in a general sense, I've had a lot of people ask me, is it true that we're not as likely to die now from an infection as we were in the early days of the pandemic? Because it, it feels like, you now a lot of it may just be the volume on the news coverage. It feels like in this second wave, so to speak, we're seeing higher numbers, but we aren't seeming to see the higher death rate. Or are we just desensitized as a people to the death rate? What do you think?
2: No, I I think the answer to your question is, if a person was likely to die back in April, they're probably almost as likely to die today Mm. if they have the same, say, age risk and other underlying condition risk factors, although our medical provision and care and earlier detection would have reduced it somewhat. Sure. Sure. But the reason that there's far fewer deaths today than there was back in April is that the majority of the cases now are individuals between the ages of 18 and 45 Uh. because the people have been paying attention to the uh, taking precautions. We're looking after our, you know, congregate living facilities. And so um, it isn't as if, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that the, the virus has somehow become less virulent and less deadly. You know, I think it's a combination of higher risk, or I should say lower risk individuals being exposed more mm. and being cases, and then those who were at higher risk now being exposed less, and then relatively speaking, making up a smaller proportion of the overall cases. Now, the states so that, that were yeah, the yeah.
0: worst early in the spring, uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Michigan, look much different than the rest of the country they do have an uptick in cases, but their hospitalizations and deaths are flat or going down. Is it because the most susceptible have already been infected? Are they doing a better job? Um, and will the yeah. other states that have a high rate now, are they going to become like New York was or not?
2: I would say no. And it partly builds on what I was just saying you know, to Chris in terms of you know, it's the higher risk individuals are more protected now because of more awareness. So I think that's one factor. So there will be increasing deaths in those states that are having these outbreaks, but I don't think anything like was experienced in New York. You know, I think the medical systems preparation is so much better. Uh, and the individuals who are being exposed now are, are at lower risk for really bad outcomes. And I think, there's also some evidence that you know some of the antivirals like remdesivir, some of the early results have shown that there is benefit in terms of a quicker recovery, cutting that down from an average of 15 days to 11 days in, in some good studies. And then dexamethasone, uh, corticosteroid, also being shown to reduce deaths uh, on, among severe patients as well. So if you consider some reduction in deaths and then also shortening of duration, uh, those are also that contributors. Now, neither of those drugs has been approved by the FDA for, uh, for COVID yet, but just they are being used, and the early studies are showing some success.
0: What's the latest situation with testing in states and how long it's taking to get testing done? Who's doing it the best, or what does the best look like?
2: Yeah, uh, according to the COVID Tracking Project, where there's some really good testing data, we're currently testing 330,000 people a day, and if that were sustained, we could cover about 3% of our entire population in a month. Um, now, that's been increasing as time goes on, but it's still re- really short of what we would need in order to get this, what I had described as really uh, you know, broad coverage testing to really get a handle on, on the extent of the outbreak in a given state. Um, and yet, it, it's, it's still the case that many labs are not able to keep up. So some places, the test results are taking up to a week to get yes. back to the patients. You know, this is almost a waste of testing. You know, the purpose of testing is to detect and isolate. Well, if yes. you're still living a normal life for seven days, then seven days later, you probably have recovered if you were sick. And so, that, you know, just a most unfortunate Um, So those are some of the some of the issues with testing, which has made it impossible for us to get to the level that we would like, you know, like to be. I think there's also some concern in the community of reluctance to get testing. You know, will it be paid? You know, is it going to be truly free or not? Um, You know, if I test positive, oh, problem, I'm not sick, but then do I have to quarantine for 14 days? So I think there's also some, you know, people, there's some behavioral issues, too, that are maybe causing people to um, be reluctant to get tested.
1: You know, just anecdotally, I've experienced that uh, really in the last two weeks, a big uptick in uh, people saying, I don't want to be tested. I don't want to be included in any health department, quasi-federal database on, on COVID. I, I really didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but our hospital, like many hospitals, is testing elective procedures. Sure. And several patients have really balked at uh, testing if you're asymptomatic and don't okay. know of an exposure.
2: And by the way, bear that psychology in mind when we think about if we do get a good vaccine available, how many of our population are going to get a vaccine as well? Um, so I think you know those are things to consider yeah, it's a good um, point. regarding the testing the testing, I did want to mention one other thing. So I divided um all of our states into ten improving states and ten worsening states just for fun and um, the improving states have brought their test positivity rates down to 7.2%. So those are including New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, some of those states. Um, While the worsening states, and that includes your Arizona, Texas, Florida, those states have now risen to a test positivity rate of 11%. And so, you know, that's kind of a support for the argument or the information you had heard previously, uh, Tom, you know, about the test positivity. I'd like to just point out, not to show off per se, but, you know, there are big regional differences in the country. And so yes. my home state of North Dakota has a test positivity rate of 4.3%. And then our neighboring states of Minnesota, 5%, Montana, 2%, South Dakota, 8%. In your state of Indiana, 9%. So we're getting, um, you know, in this five state region that I happen to live in, some pretty aggressive testing that's helping us to maintain a lower test positivity rate and therefore less likelihood of an unanticipated outbreak.
0: So at 9% here in Indiana, are we doing okay or do we need to get down to that 5
2: Yeah, I think you know it's better than 10%, but it should be down to 5%. Okay. Yeah.
0: Mark, yeah. our last question before our break, and that is what have we learned from other countries about what is successful in controlling this and what isn't?
2: So I've been studying the 43 countries who have experienced the biggest COVID challenges, asking, you know, what have countries like Germany, Japan, Denmark, New Zealand done to suppress their outbreak? And I asked the question, if the government health expenditures as a proportion of overall health expenditures is higher, then the government will want to suppress the outbreak more quickly because they're on the hook for the bill and then probably will be more aggressive and take quicker action. So I was asking whether that was the case. So I divided the countries into quartiles by government expenditure as a percentage of overall health expenditures. So the top quartile of those 11 countries, they spend 82% of their health expenditures come from the government. And for them, the number of days from the 10th case to the peak of the epi outbreak was an average of 42 days. The second quartile spends 72% of their costs come from the government. That includes New Zealand, Italy, and Canada. Their average was 40 days, so they're about the same. The lowest quartile, the average government spending was only 35% of total health expenditures, and that includes the U.S. at 50.2%, and the number of days from the 10th case to the peak was 78 days. Wow. Almost twice as long, and the U.S., of course, hasn't even hit a peak yet. So it seems as if my hypothesis was, was somewhat true. So those countries that have a very engaged government healthcare approach that's investing heavily in it seems to have been more effective at reining in the extent of the outbreak and shortening the duration.
0: So what specific things did they do that we could learn from here besides increasing our government expenditure? There must be certain public health actions that fell out in that analysis
2: so certainly shelter in place orders early and aggressive reluctance to lift those orders prematurely definitely aggressive testing and contact tracing because again the government had the resource to employ those individuals to do that those are some of the actual measures you know public health measures that those those countries put in place and then furthermore they're more coordinated in those countries because you have the government's really calling the shots on that. Whereas if you have a more extensive, like, private system that's responsible for these actions, well, then it's harder to get them coordinated to all take action in a timely manner. So a, I think there's, yeah, uh, you know, some lessons to be learned here.
0: In a country that's formed like ours under a certain federal viewpoint where the state's mm. Department of Health have the, uh, the right and the authority, there is really no national authority in the United States yep. to do that regardless of who the president is. And I think too,
1: I think you can't under underestimate that culturally um, other countries are more compliant with the shelter in place. Mm. You know, I always think about the example of Canadians will line up in a nice queue for a bus. Americans will never line up in a straight line. It's just, (laughs) it's in our cultural DNA And, and we tend to be opposed to any kind of mass shelter in place and it's hard to get past it. Other countries may be more culturally accepting of it and, As a result, their spread was better.
0: So, I guess the key question before we take our break here then is: Can we get through this without having to do another lockdown, shelter-in-place, with business closure?
2: I don't. We were already seeing in states where they're not only mask orders, but they're reversing some of their, uh, you know, business openings, closing restaurants and bars. So we are going in the other direction. Could it become a full-blown shelter-in-place order again? Absolutely.
0: Let's take a break with that note and come back with more on Dr. Doctor here from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio.
1: Abortion. Phonography. Embryonic stem cell
0: research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866 Ave Maria or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Welcome back to our continuing interview with epidemiologist Mark Strand. Mark, do we have actual real time data within the COVID pandemic from other countries or our own for how well cloth face coverings or other masks help prevent the spread of COVID? Um, You know,
2: there's increasing evidence that you can see reductions in population-wide extent of the outbreak with face masks. Uh, Greg Poland of Mayo Clinic, a paper in the Journal of Health Affairs recently has reported that uh, wearing masks or states which have used mask mandates have seen a 2% drop per day in the number of cases occurring. And so there is some evidence there. Um, We also should point out that, you know, the Asian countries have been using masks as a way of preventing infectious disease spreads as far back as 1910. In China, um, and so they have that custom. And I think it was interesting to notice that in New York City in the outbreak, while Asians make up 14 percent of the population, they made up only seven percent of the yes. cases. Yes. And, and I think it was it was a partly a function of how they really take it seriously, having lived through these types of epidemics. But also, they generally wore face coverings early, and so um, there's some good evidence. Another story was, or report was was given of a passenger with COVID who flew all the way from China to Canada in 14 hours in a plane, wearing a face mask, didn't spread the disease to any of the passengers. And so there's some some good evidence out there now of the benefits of face masks.
1: So, So Mark, we have have a lot of people that are opposed to face masks and the the political or the, the libertarian aspect of it set aside. Is it debatable from a scientific standpoint that a face mask will help stop the spread of viral infections.
2: Well, I don't know what kind of evidence you know they might be looking for, but um one of the things that I have used with some people is to say, okay, God has given us mucosa and nose hairs to keep bad things like viruses from getting into our lungs and they're about 60% effective. So don't shave your nose hairs for the next six months,
0: but that's not <laughs> that's enough. <We> great still- <laughs> advice. You heard it here on Dr. Doctor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we, still get, we still get sick, so then we add a mask. Now, masks are not complete. I mean, an N95 is pretty foolproof, but a cloth, triple-layered, washable mask might give 60% protection. Well, then you add the two together, so that's 40% failure times 40% failure. That's 16% failure. So now you're not getting 60% protection. You're getting 84% protection. Right. Now we add on top of that six feet of distancing, which allows viruses to fall in that six foot distance and and most of them not aerosolized. That's another 60% protection. Well, now that failure rate is such that we're basically getting only a 6.4% failure rate. Uh, And so we're getting a a 90, 94.6% or 93.6% protection. Now, this is a simple way of looking at it, but those are, you know, it's none of them are in and of themselves. An absolute foolproof method, but they're additive in nature and therefore are seen as best practices.
0: That's a great example. Now, a lot another great example, supposedly that's been pointed out, is the country of New Zealand. They've basically eradicated um, COVID nineteen there. What price did they have to pay, and what can we learn from New Zealand, Mark?
2: Yeah. So three days after the World Health Organization declared the outbreak a public health emergency, uh, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Uh, put in place a very strong uh, order, shelter in place order, and lots of measures you know it was early lockdown, um, and they stuck with that they, they described it as crushing the curve until June fifteenth. The country went three weeks without any new infections. Um, new Zealand was you know I was talking about this from the tenth case to the yes. peak. New Zealand was number two of all forty three countries, only thirteen days from yeah. the tenth case to the peak. They had brought down the hammer. Furthermore if you look at from the 10th case to 20% down the other side of the curve which i yes. also see as substantial suppression 24 days that put them as the average in the six, in the 43 countries that i've studied is 64 days My goodness. so they were like a third of the time that the other 43 affected countries were so they definitely got the results of that and such that they have now been able to uh, resume lots of their uh, normal social activities so Um, The price, I'm not totally sure, you know, the price that they paid as a society, but I think they're closer to the China model, where it was a really heavy handed and early and aggressive approach, which then gave them the ability to suppress it to the point that they can now have lots of uh, space within which to resume their economy, their schools and their life together.
0: And you bring up schools. What have we learned from other countries that have already opened up schools that might help us here in the United States as we come up to back to school season?
2: So there's been certain countries that have followed different approaches. South Korea has opened schools. So they then had to close them again but and reopen using temp- temperature checks at the doors, plastic dividers, masks. Um, others have had strict limits on contact. So some schools in Denmark had pods where only four or five children could be in, in one space. So there's lots of different approaches that have been used in different countries. Um, I think there's still some debate about whether children might be less likely to transmit COVID than, than adults. So there's, there's some possibility that the children you know, are slightly less vulnerable to, a, to an outbreak in their settings. Um, so there's different, um, uh, different experiences in different countries. I'd like to refer to an article by Ezekiel Emanuel in the New York Times on July 29th, where he provided some really good guidelines for school reopening, and um, some of the issues that he focused on was, you know, low community spread, test positivity rate of less than 5%. Obviously, the practices of distancing, mask wearing, cleaning facilities, etc. But he also broke down all of the activities associated with schools into categories and then evaluated low risk to high risk. So, oh. for example, how are kids transported to school? If they're biking and walking, that's low. If they're all busing, that's high. Mm. What does the routine classwork look like if they're at their desks working alone, that's low. But hall passing and locker room activity, you know being in locker rooms, that's high. Um, how is lunch served? Prepacked meals, low risk cafeteria high risk, athletics and you know arts and concerts, uh, to the extent that those are uh, allowing for personal intimate contact of large numbers for long periods of time, then that's high. So he provided some really good feedback or input there that I think schools could consider in terms of allowing for the lowest risk in each of those categories, especially early on in starting the school year.
0: I love that because he's looking safe versus unsafe, not essential versus non-essential, which mm. I think mm. has been a mistake that many mm. governments have made. But mm. I'm only a doctor. Uh, <laughs> so so Mark, I know one thing you wanted to talk about, and I think our listeners want. So based on all this n- data that you crunch from around the world. What is the current state of best practices to get rid of the pandemic, but still be able to do the vast majority of human activities that give our lives meaning?
2: Sure. So, you know, minimizing indoor activities in close proximity without masks for extended periods of time with no air replacement among people who are unwilling to comply with some distancing guidelines. Those are you know, that's the perfect storm, priorities. Yeah. yeah, that's
1: the Yeah. That's the perfect storm.
2: That's the situation. So in my mind, people strolling malls are not responsible for outbreaks. Furthermore, we should be able to create workspaces now that allow us to minimize outbreaks. A case here and there, of course, they're going to be that. But to have the start of an uncontrollable outbreak in a workplace setting, um, I think we can, we can avoid that. So um, those are some of the general practices that certainly we, we now know and should be able to implement as we resume, whether it's school, whether it's people returning to work uh, or, or other in acti- church. I mean, obviously church activities as well.
1: Now, none, none of the three of us live where mass transit is essential, but for those people in large urban areas where subways and buses are a critical component of the economy, is that ever going to be safe or is that going to just be uh, a risk that has to be tolerated?
2: Yeah, you know, you think about your levels of protection. So wear your mask, you know, keep some distance to the extent you're able, you know, I'm sure they're all cleaning those places as frequently as they're able. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a risk that just has to be accepted and managed.
1: It's funny as you think about the future, it's hard to imagine a time that we'll feel comfortable on a crowded airport shuttle uh, hanging onto that rail bumping everyone around you at every turn. Mm. That's just something that happened decades ago that it's hard
0: to imagine it ever
1: happening again.
0: Mm -hmm. Mark, is there anything we know now that we didn't know three to four months ago that have surprised you about what is low risk that is really high or that's high risk that you thought was low?
2: Um, I don't know about anything that's necessarily surprised me. Um, I think, you know, the, Practices that I, you know, previously mentioned regarding the low risk versus high risk, I think is a consideration, you know, the notion previously of, like you said, if it's essential or not essential, you know, I don't think that was a good way to, to think about how to stratify risk. I think it should have been based on true risk. Um, and then from the beginning, strive at every turn to minimize risk as opposed to give the illusion that we could uh, to it's reduce minutes. risk. Not that we could eliminate all risk. Mm -hmm. And so I think those are some of the lessons that, you know, perhaps we've learned and maybe some false illusions that somehow this could be completely stopped. You know, we often assume that our money, our technology, our smarts can give absolute solutions to to the problems we face. And this situation has challenged us to think about things much more in terms of, of like levels or gradations of risk reduction in a way that I think is really important as we move forward the rest of this year.
0: So I've heard people say that we have a bunch of New York's incubating with those Southern states, but you don't think that the death rate is going to approach New York in those states because they're mostly younger patients. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. That's my, that's my expectation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We have younger people, I guess, you know, in my mind, the younger people are more likely to uh, sort of resist the shelter in place. They're going to be out and about. They're more likely to get infected, but they're less likely to die because yep. of, their, of their risk factors. Um,
2: I was going to say, in defense of the young folks, I would also give them a little bit of defense in the sense that they're the ones that are out on the, you know, we've used this to refer to people of color being more vulnerable. Frequently, it's because they're involved in work where they have no choice. So mm. it's, you know, restaurants waiting, you know, service industry. And I would say a lot of our younger people as well, are really in a position of they have to wait tables, you know, they have to work in, in various types of service industry that puts them at risk. So I just want to not somehow throw all of our younger people under the bus as if sure. they don't have any concern right. for the well being of our society. I think there's been some unfair accusations of that. Hmm. Um, you know, that and maybe some of them have been irresponsible, but yet I know many have, have, have not, but they're put in those positions that are like even nursing home, you know, like a lot of the younger individuals in our community that have contracted COVID were CNAs in nursing homes. And, um, right. you know, they, they contracted it in the healthcare setting. And so, uh, yeah, there's certainly both factors at work there with our younger people.
0: Yeah, good points all. Mm-hmm. Mark, there's a number of different things that have been done to try to limit COVID, you know, social distancing, masks, hand hygiene, business and school closure, etc., do you have a hierarchy of how what has been the most effective and next most effective in this? Is there any way to break that out?
2: Nothing can replace the shelter in place. So it's the most brutal, it's the most draconian, it's the most devastating to a society socially and economically, but we saw the result of that. Mm. So given the fact that that's not a realistic, certainly not a long-term option, and not the preferred, we then have to... It, to the extent that people are saying, let's not return to shelter in place orders, to that extent, could we appeal to people to double down on the really minimally disruptive pra- practices such as wearing masks, keeping that distance, uh, you know, hand washing, yeah. hand washing, you know, good hand hygiene, um, you know, organizing events in a responsible way, you know, outdoor or ventilation provided when able you know, um, so these are things that, to me, to the extent that people want to have the normalcy as we might think of it now, to that extent, could we appeal to people to be willing to double down on those, I think, minimally invasive requirements that really make a big difference?
1: Mark, playing a little devil's advocate with that idea, with the infection fatality rate low, fortunately, um, how do, how should we respond to someone who takes the position that, look, guys, you're taking this too seriously. No, the people aren't dying as much. Mask, distancing, limiting gatherings, all of that. It's just not necessary. How do we? How do we respond to that feeling?
2: Yeah, I mean, after all, we have 155,000 deaths to COVID deaths now. Two- flu deaths was 34,000. So we're talking about four to five times more deaths under some really strict practices to prevent transmission. So I think there's not a good argument to make that this is somehow not a serious problem um, in comparisons like say to influenza. You know, I think another thing that's come out, and this might be in the category of things we've learned now that we didn't know a few months ago, Uh, recovery from COVID-19 is taking a lot longer than we had previously thought. You know, this is not a week of really heavy influenza and then back to work, but rather we're finding people are taking up to three weeks to recover uh, from this, including younger people, one in five adults ages 18 to 34 with no chronic conditions, had not returned to normal health as of fourteen to twenty one days after testing positive and this is you know C D C reports, recent C D C reports. Yeah, and that doesn't that doesn't show up in something
1: as crude as the as the fatality rate. Fatality. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: And I think there's also some concern about long long term lung damage. Uh you know, at this point it's somewhat anecdotal, but there's some concern that people will suffer from long term respiratory function issues uh after recovering from COVID. So yeah, it, there's no denying that this is not just
0: uh seasonal flu. So, Mark, I'm curious how you have changed your life. Have you been out to eat in a restaurant yet?
2: Uh, maybe a couple times. You know, <laughs> indoors a small, or outdoors? It, um, outdoors, I would say a couple of times, but indoors, maybe twice. Um, but again, very conscious to not be there at you know peak hours and lots of space. No, I'm not at all comfortable at this point to spending two hours in a crowded restaurant.
0: What kind of mask do you wear?
2: I wear a cloth double layer cloth with a slit in it that I can insert and replace a paper towel every day, easily washable. It has a, a, you know, I've inserted a a wire across the top. It's handmade so that I can get nice, you know, upper face, you know, conformity Um, pretty snug fitting. So it's, what's the reason
0: for the paper towel in the middle?
2: Uh, It's just to add a third layer. You know, Mm it's talked about triple layers just for that mechanical disruption. And the fact that it's not a cloth, Um, is just to be able to replace that and it gets quicker to dry. Uh, Just the design. I think sewing a triple layer is harder than a double layer.
0: Mm. Are there any situations where you wear a mask outside?
2: Um, Yes. So like uh, if I went to a reception and there was a large number of people, even if we were outdoors and I was not familiar with the setting or the people, I would definitely wear it outdoors.
0: And how about in your church?
2: Our church has, so we have the unique situation of having uh, two churches in one each of two states, Minnesota and North Dakota. Minnesota now has a mask order required. That's right. North Dakota does not. So we made the difficult decision of requiring our North Dakota church to make masks now mandatory starting this Sunday. So previously, we were in a masks recommended. All serving individuals had to wear masks, but then attenders, it was uh, uh, recommended. And we had about 65 to 70% mask wearing, and I was counting. Uh, And we're at about, I'd say, 50% attendance. So that's that's where, where our church situation is at.
0: Well, you usually have some signs of hope for everybody. So I want to give you a chance, make some final comments about what you'd like to leave our listeners with, particularly in terms of hope in the midst of pandemic.
2: I want to tell a little story about the last few months, Um, starting on March 15th, when the president considered, you know, that this was a national emergency, um, I started making Facebook videos to -hmm. provide to my 221 Facebook friends. I ended up making 14 videos with an average length of 12 minutes each, which ended up having over 12,000 viewers. And these videos were basically trying to explain complex epidemiology ideas in simple terms followed up with a few Reflections of a spiritual nature to give hope to the listeners and Last week I was out jogging with my son on a bike trail and as we're jogging Somebody on a bicycle coming forward coming toward me hollers as we're passing. I love your Facebook videos (laughs) They were great and I was so intrigued. I said, "Hey, stop! I need to need to meet you." And so we met up, and I said, "Tell me about yourself." And he said, "Well, I got, got got your your videos, and I became an adherent. You just gave me the information I needed. You gave me the hope I needed. I was able to persuade my in-laws that this is real and that it's serious." And uh, he said, "Besides, you were able to give. He talked about that. You know, he's a Christian as well." He said, you're able to put it in a perspective that just gave me confidence. And I just have been resting on that. And it's just meant so much to me. And so I was just, I was just thankful for, and I would, you know, you guys on this radio show as well, thankful for the opportunity to be stewards of knowledge of science, medicine, epidemiology, but to be stewards of that in a way whereby hopefully we can put it in digestible and understandable terms. So that the many, many people out there who are who are anxious or fearful are able to be treated with respect and, and given information that's non-sensationalized in a way that makes sense. And on top of that, that they then are able to move forward with the hope that, that we have in, in Christ and the hope that we have in, in good people who are doing their best to help rein in this pandemic. So that was a charming little story. You usually don't know. You know, you guys as physicians, you have happy patients every day who thank you and 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 walk away with gratitude for the great work you do to to change their lives and even save their lives. You know, most of what I do, I never really know because it's based, you know, on a population level. It's research, it's reporting, and all. So one little incident with a with a person like that out of the blue meant a lot to me. And I and I hope your listeners are likewise uh, being edified and blessed by what you guys are doing during this time.
0: They have been by you also, Mark. Thank you for edifying our listeners and being with us on another episode of Doctor Doctor.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And it's
0: time for the answer to the medical trivia question. Take it away, Tom. And it was a simple one. Nature Microbiology just published that this virus has been circulating for the last four to seven decades in a particular animal. And it is the bat. So listeners,
1: if you needed yet another reason to be fearful of bats, there you have it.
0: Yeah, it was a, a fascinating study. And they looked at it three different ways. So in one way, at least since 1948, another way since 69, and in the most recent way, at least since 1982. So that's four to seven decades worth of it being in bats. We just weren't aware of it because scientists aren't out there testing everything that could be possibly be tested. But there was no evidence, uh, again, in another study that this has been manufactured by man or woman.
1: Yeah, important point to make. And that's probably a good segue as as we close. It's been a great episode with our good friend, uh, Mark Strand. And there's so many great takeaways, but I think we're reminded with all of the political sort of spending that goes on, it's important to remember the data and the science. Um, And that the way we feel about this pandemic has nothing to do with presidential politics. It's about virology uh, and infectious disease. It's a bad infection. It's a bad virus. Uh, people die. A lot more people die than from the flu. And wearing masks, uh, as we pointed out in our mask hysteria episode, it's not perfect, is it? Uh, But there's very good data, anecdotal and otherwise, that show masking can help. Certainly, there are people out there who maybe can't wear masks for various conditions. Maybe they should shelter in place uh, out of respect for others. But good hand hygiene, wearing a mask. Uh, good social distancing can actually save lives.
0: It's been fun, Chris. I'm I'm so happy to get to do this with you and with Mark and with all of our listeners out there listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. Thanks for being with us for We Are, the official podcast and radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. And we'd ask you to please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to it
1: on their favorite podcast app or always they can find us at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor this is dr tom mcgovern and i'm dr chris Stroud. and we're signing off until your next dose of dr doctor dr doctor is the official radio program of the catholic medical association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine the views expressed on dr doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the catholic medical association Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit com
0: slash doctor.